0: In this scene from The Schrodinger Girl, Garrett Adams, our protagonist, a stodgy New psychology professor in 1967, is having his third meeting with the 16-year-old girl, Daphne, who's going to change his world. The novel begins with him very upset about the Yankees' second losing season, and he meets her in a bookstore and they bond over a shared interest in quantum physics. So we come in, in the middle of the scene where he has begun to enter into the culture of the sixties, which he never has before by listening to the Beatles. And he says, yes, I've been listening to the Beatles. As I said this, I realized that I really liked the group. I may have begun listening to them as a way to share Daphne's world but with repeated listening, I'd become a fan. I liked the Beatles. Doing a little research, I had revealed had revealed that even Leonard Bernstein made admiring comments about them. Though maybe it was pedantic of me to care about that. In my life, I love you more. I concluded the song. I didn't feel romantic love for the pint-sized philosopher in front of me. But she was my guide out of the past I'd been living in right down to her stained fingers. How do you do your seascapes, I ask? Pale, lilac, and turquoise. I have a friend who runs an art gallery. They had an exhibit of watercolors that I read about in the Times. The gallery's only about a block from here. Let's go. The West 50s hosted a gaggle of galleries and we could visit several. I knew a woman who worked at the Forrester Gallery. She was actually someone Jerry had run across. Caroline and I had gone on one lackluster blind date and then decided to pursue only friendship, but neither of us had called the other since then. My Schrodinger girl promptly got up from the table, lifted her plum-colored large crocheted shoulder purse from the hook. The rich shade enhanced the red glints in her hair and the deeper emerald glints in her eyes. We walked several blocks, Our pronounced height difference made talking impossible. I had to slow my pace to allow Daphne to keep up. I'd forgotten how small she was. She trailed me by a few steps, no matter how much I slowed my pace. When we arrived at the gallery and I held the door for her, I could see that the sun and heat had reddened her cheeks. She presented a canvas of jewel tones, emerald eyes, auburn hair, purple purse, and reddening cheeks. The very brisk walk had taken her breath away. Caroline saw me immediately. In contrast to Daphne, she wore elegant black. Her slim-cut mid-thigh mini-dress showed her endless slender legs. Her black hair was twisted up in a casual updo held in place by a sterling silver hair ornament. Caroline, a woman at her peak, appeared to be working hard to stave off a creeping disappointment in life. Our one date had revealed that we were fundamentally mismatched. Caroline tried too hard, laughing at all my jokes, telling stories in a rush of forced intimacy, whereas I didn't try hard enough. I was detached and impassive. What was Jerry thinking? I had wondered. Or maybe I resisted connecting to anyone. I carried around the failure of my early marriage and I hung on to things too long. I surprised myself at my happiness at seeing Caroline. She strode across the gallery, took my right hand, and in a musical contralto voice said, How great it is to see you! And who is this? Daphne glanced up, and I could hear Caroline's loud intake of air. She stared at Daphne with an inscrutable expression. Did she think Daphne was too young for me? Well, of course she was. Did she assume we were dating? I thought Caroline and my decision not to date was mutual. Now I could see Caroline was holding her breath and I wasn't so sure. This is Daphne, a young friend, I answered. And Daphne, this is Caroline, another friend. Is the Katagosha exhibit still here? Daphne's description of her watercolors had reminded me of her painting, the paintings of this Japanese artist who painted nature scenes in dreamlike pastels straddling the east-west divide no caroline said we've hung a new show galen green have you heard of him of course i have. he was a big deal i had seen his photograph on the cover of art news several times over the years when i scanned the new periodicals at the library i've heard of him too said daphne her cheeks had kept their ruddy glow green's work lined the walls portraits still life some landscapes we perused the back wall of the small gallery where they hung the larger paintings. We faced a canvas that was about four feet tall by three feet wide, large and commanding. We approached it and stopped cold. Daphne vocalized a loud yelp of extreme dismay, and I could feel her fingers digging into my arm. In front of us was a very appealing nude. Although the painting was somewhat abstract, green had left enough shape to the features of the young woman to see that she exactly resembled Daphne. Same heart-shaped face, small straight nose, and profusion of auburn hair, though the strands draped in tiny plaits, not like the riot of tresses of the girl beside me. The nude in the painting startled me with her beauty and with her complete resemblance to the girl beside me. This explained Caroline's odd glance. Caroline must have recognized Daphne immediately. By then, Daphne had stopped her shocked scream and wailed. Garrett, I swear, I did not sit for that portrait, and I have never met Galen Green. The artist had named his painting Daphne in Salmon and Green, punning on his own name, I suppose. Daphne kept insisting, I don't know the girl in the painting. Then she asked, how can she look just like me and have my name too? Chapter 4. We both stared at the canvas. I wasn't comfortable staring at the naked girl who so resembled Daphne, but I couldn't take my eyes from it. The figure reclined on a red divan, near a well-set table in a room with peach walls. A small meal awaited, laid out on an apricot tablecloth, served on pale celadon green plates. On each of two plates lay what appeared to be a serving of salmon and haricot ver, Everything had been painted in warm tones, except the plates and the green beans. The artist had rendered the model's skin a pink alabaster and her breasts with rosy areoles. Although some of the detail of the painting had been sacrificed to the abstraction of Green's work, I couldn't escape the resemblance of the subject to Daphne or the power of the portrait. Galen Green had painted a remarkably successful painting. Daphne hadn't relaxed her grip on my arm. Several other gallery patrons sneak surreptitious glances at Daphne beside me and at the girl in the painting, their eyes confirming what she and I saw. I could feel her discomfort growing. I turned to her and asked, would you like me to ask Caroline about the painting? She nodded. Caroline stood at the front of the gallery to greet incoming visitors. When I approached her, she said in an almost natural voice, Your young friend is so lovely in her portrait. Green has captured her. But she insists she never sat for the portrait. She feels quite upset, actually, and mystified. How can that possibly be? Caroline questioned. Not only is the girl in the portrait her identical twin, but they share the same name. I know, but she's so adamant. I asked Caroline a few questions. Yes, she had hung the paintings. The gallery had been planning a show for Galen for quite a while. He had so much new work. She confirmed that Daphne in Salmon and Green was the last canvas. It had been completed just a week or so before the show opened, brought down after the rest of the collection. It's good, don't you think, she asked. Matisse, through the lens of abstract expressionism. I do think it's good, I answered. I asked her about Galen's model. I don't know anything about her she said do you think that's her real name it could be she mused but in the history of painting there have been many other daphnis polinolo trivesiani taipolo albani waterhouse each have a daphne painting for example and of course the most famous is bernini's sculpture i forgave caroline for showing off a little not only was she trying to get her bearings an unusual situation. The memory of our date must have added to her unease since we hadn't seen each other since then. I didn't recognize any of the artists' names, and I didn't think I'd ever seen those works. My mother liked to take me to museums and galleries as a day out, but I had never made a study of art. I did remember that in April, when I would met Daphne, she mentioned a myth concerning her name. I saw Galen when he came to inspect his show, Caroline volunteered. He didn't say anything about this painting or its model. So you have never seen the girl in the painting, I asked. No, never, she answered, shaking her head no for emphasis, although I would swear I had seen her today. Maybe I should talk to Galen Green because my Daphne is so upset. Could you put me in touch with him? I'm sorry, but I just couldn't do that, she answered gently but firmly. I'd risk my job. We protect our artists. Of course. Excuse me, Caroline. I turned away from her to go find Daphne, but she was no longer standing where I left her, in front of the painting. I shouldn't have expected her to be. The portrait was very unsettling to her. I began to survey the space, but she was nowhere to be seen.
1: She had effectively vanished. So for anyone watching, you missed the reading unfortunately, my bad, but now on for the conversation. First, I just want to um, show everyone who's here who doesn't know, this is the book with the wonderful cover art by Renette Zimmerly. is that it?
0: You're perfect, Renette Zimmerle.
1: Um, So yes, look for this. And I'm also going to drop the links to buy it through SeaWitch. Okay, so these are the we have IndieBound and also our independent ebook supplier. Okay, so both of those links will support SeaWitch and your local bookstores. So that's awesome. Uh, so first I thought uh, you could talk a little bit about the genesis of the book. Um, I'll say briefly, I, you, when you first started, it was a really different book with kind of the same idea. Uh, someone splitting off into different iterations, following uh, five different versions of the same person in different lives, uh, branching timelines kind of thing. So can you talk a little bit about how that initial version transformed into the published story?
0: Sure. Both this and my next book, which is called The Fibonacci Conspiracy, still looking for a publisher, um, both originated in the same senior observer I had in an early English literature class at Nassau. He was absolutely brilliant and had had a career owning and running a textile company where he made all the Gap shirts, all the Gap white turtlenecks. He refused to make the colored ones because he said it was slave labor, but the white ones were made here. And he did that. And then he took several classes with me. And he described his love for his wife, whom he met when she was 19 and had been with him ever since with such devotion that I actually became quite envious. And I began this book as um, a consolation to myself. What have I gained and learned from not having such a stable life and such a long love and somebody so devoted to me? And my life was so um, fractured that I got the idea of putting myself into five different women and exploring them and exploring the different boyfriends I had through the five different women. Honestly, that was the way it began. And I wrote a 364-page book that was, was third-person narration of the five of them. And finally got it to Michael Peach, who I don't know if you guys know, but he is probably the most powerful publishing executive in the United States because he runs the Hatchet Group, which oversees like 12 subsidiaries, one of which is Little Brown and Company which he was the president of then. And he wrote me a very lovely note back and told me I wrote beautifully, but absolutely no one would read my book. So they were completely not interested. I, he actually went so far as to say, I would never have an audience. And that wasn't really the first time I'd heard things like that. So I put it away and got frustrated as I want to do. Um, and then I took a creative writing class because I noticed that so many people who were being published came out of MFA programs, so I enrolled myself in one. And my first teacher was Kaylee Jones, who is my mentor, there Godfather, and editor and publisher. And she and the people in the class kind of they didn't exactly share Michael Peach's feelings, but I could tell that they didn't like the narration. So this book came about because I decided I to to reduce the five of them to four and link them through a narrator and have the, the observer be more important because I think people felt the story was very fractured. So that guy, Robert, who I will love forever, he was the one who made me start to write this book. And then the technical issues involved were really what created the book. And actually, Garrett became more interesting to me than Daphne as I wrote the book.
1: Well, I think that's really interesting because Daphne is the unusual one. She's the one with the sci-fi magical realism phenomenon going on around her. But it's Garrett looking at her and his reaction to that phenomenon that makes the book work. so I think that's a really interesting thing to to note that observing the effect can be more interesting than the thing itself. Um, cool. So um, we have our first question in the chat. Sarah has asked, "I'm curious about the Daphne who was cut. Um, would, does it still feel like the same different versions of Daphne to you, Mom?" Um, no. Because-
0: the original novel that I had took her from 15 to 55, and it was like all five of their whole lives, and Kaylee said, no, 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 you have to put it in two years. Like, she was adamant about that, and so I did. I took so much advice from my, from my editor, and I'm so glad that I did. I, I think raining in a vacuum is really, really difficult, and that the constant feedback is, is invaluable.
1: Well, one thing about limiting it to the two years is that it also makes the 60s setting so, so prominent. Um, in the original, which I read, and it was beautiful, um, the influence of the 60s certainly is felt throughout their lives, but would never be as profound as, <laughs> um, as it is when the whole book is set there. So I think that really adds a lot also.
0: Well, you, there were two goals that I had in writing this book. I call myself in my bio a refugee from the 60s. Last night, I don't know if anybody else did, I watched Ringo Starr's 80th birthday party on YouTube. It was so amazing and it was so great to be back there with all the graphics and the Peter Max type stuff and peace love, which may be irritating coming from rich 80 year old dudes, but it's still fun to see. Um, so I never read, I read so many novels about the sixties and I never read any one of them whose sixties felt like my sixties and it was something I always wanted to talk about. So I'm glad to hear you say that David, the other goal that I had was to ask the question of how does consciousness transform? How do we change people from being apathetic, apolitical and feeling like they're not involved in the process to having them be engaged? So that's why Garrett became so interesting to me because he's the one who has to change.
1: Yeah, totally. And it's by making it someone older, someone who has um, completely resisted all change. The opening scene, he's talking about how much he hates 60s style and colors and things. Um, It also becomes a microcosm of that process and you see it in sharper relief. So I think that's really cool also. Great. Um, so I also wanted to ask you, wh- how do you feel about um, the role of the myth, the Daphne myth in the novel? Uh, you mentioned it briefly in that passage and certainly it's there, but it's not a, like a retelling of the myth. So how, how do you feel about that now?
0: I guess my book has some science some myth, some history, some politics, some music, and some art. And I guess for me, every moment is always informed by all those things, and they all talk about the same world. We kind of act like people who talk about myth and people who talk about the Higgs-Boson particle are looking at different realities, and it's not true. So one of my goals is to show that these are all descriptors of the same reality. No matter which angle you're looking at it from, you're looking at the same thing. So I think the myth is there as a trace. And different people have found different paths through the book. Some people pick up on it, some people don't. I've gotten a lot of positive feedback from the people who, men, you know, who like the sci-fi aspect. So there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of paths that you can take, which is really, echoes the theme of the novel because it's, there's a lot of paths she can take, right?
1: Cool, yeah, good point. Um, Well, and that's also shown by Garrett exploring the mystery through science, through music, through art. He deliberately follows all those paths. Um, Okay, Kaylee has said, I'm so not versed in physics, but I've been thinking about physics lately. The electrons that are shot through the slits change direction when observed. Could that be Daphne for Garrett? The observer is the observed idea
0: i think that's wonderful and perfect and always going on the observer effect that when we observe something it changes but we change too it changes us we change it and it changes us and yes that's the really important experiment that confounded everybody cuz light was both a particle and a wave which is really what schrodinger's you know cat parable is talking about that store that idea of how can one thing be two contradictory things at the same time. And I think that that's what was so amazing about quantum mechanics. And I think that that is now coming into popular consciousness as something actual people experience. I keep going back to my experience at NASA because it was very rich. And I taught uh, MDC, which for those of you who don't know is multidisciplinary course and it blended a lot of disciplines together. And we had to take trainings for each course we wanted to teach, and I took a training for um, MDC 130, which was the postmodern course, and also MDC 101, and all of these, which is Making of the Modern Mind, and all these ideas came into relief for me there, and one of my colleagues in that seminar said, but we don't really feel in a quantum way. We feel in a Newtonian way, but I don't like when I was a small child, I, I intuited the quantum world. It's just how the world seemed to me. And I got kicked out of my sixth grade classroom for saying it because the teacher. well, he was very polite and he said, why don't you sit in the hall? Because I told him that what he was teaching wasn't exactly correct, that it was Newtonian point of view, that there was no absolute rest or, or an absolute, yeah, rest in, in Einstein's world. And he said, Maybe this, you'd like to sit out in the hall for this lesson. So I did. So I do f- live that reality. And I think more and more people are starting to.
1: Yeah, you, you absolutely see um, that approach creeping into pop culture. And even just in something so simple as references to Schrodinger's Cat. You, you, the past few years, tons of random TV shows have mentioned it and things. So absolutely true. It's definitely started to make a shift. Um, and I also think that as the contemporary world becomes more and more bizarre, the, the quantum world starts to make more sense to people. Um,
0: it's true. Sure. Like we don't live in that grid of the, that the enlightenment thinkers had, right? The clockwork universe.
1: No, I think we all don't, no one feels there right now. Um, So one thing I wanted to mention is that you managed to create so many really interesting and rich characters, not just Garrett and Daphne, but Caroline and Jerry and Galen um, and characters, some characters that only have a couple of scenes. Was there any deliberate act in that or is it just that they felt real to you and therefore feel real on the page because you imagine them so well.
0: You know, people always ask me about my dialogue. Why is my dialogue realistic? Because they have trouble composing dialogue. And I always say, you don't compose dialogue, you become your character and then you just talk. So I would call myself a method writer, like a method actor. So I become those people when I am writing about them. So they are as important at that moment as the main characters, because they're people. And just because they don't have a big role in this particular story doesn't make them any less important than the people who have a bigger role in the story.
1: Absolutely, cool. Um, We have another question from Judy Kinney who has mentioned, I felt that the myth and Daphne's metamorphosis into a laurel branch invited us gently to entertain an autobiographical reference to the novel. So I'm going to speak mentioned something that um, for my whole life, mom has been obsessed with the name Daphne as a mirror of her name, Laurel. Um, The Laurel tree is called Daphne in Greek. So they literally are the same word. Um, Sorry.
0: So definitely yes, Judy.
1: Yes, yes, definitely intentional. (laughs) Um, Kaylee's stealing method writer from you, mom. You should oh, know.
0: Good. That's such a compliment. I am so honored.
1: Um, okay, another question from Sham. A lot of lovely imagery from the gallery passage that you read involved references to color. For me, it evoked light refracted through a prism and the small range of the universe that is accessible to us through art. Was that an intentional way of thinking about Daphne?
0: No, but I'm gonna claim it was because it's brilliant. So I'm gonna steal that from you.
1: Um, but it's definitely throughout the book uh, because of the 60s setting, the mod colors that, Ga- that Garrett hates at the beginning to the bright colors he sees when he's tripping. They're, the um, color becomes a symbol for the changing world and the liveliness of the 60s, I think.
0: Well, there are, that's like the Wizard of Oz, right? The yeah. way- Starts in black and white, and then Oz is all in color.
1: Cool. Any other questions from the audience at the moment? And you can
0: unmute yourself and ask directly. By all
1: means, please. We we love to have interaction. No, not right now. Okay. Um, Yes. Someone is speaking. This is really nice to uh, virtually see you. Diana, Um, I recognize you from your picture, (laughs) it's so nice to meet you. Yes, not quite in person, but almost. Um, So this is awesome. I love the book. Um, And one of the things that I've actually been thinking about just lately about it is obviously, you know, you were writing this long before the past couple of months and current events, but there's that theme of like radicalization and consciousness changing, you know, throughout. I think that's seen in at least one of the Daphne's but also Garrett's changing views and how he comes to see the Vietnam War and protests. Um, And I just wonder if you have thoughts about, um, I guess, how that view and how you're writing about all of these events in the 60s relate to what people are going through right now.
0: You know, uh, somebody just wrote a review for me for Honeysuckle Magazine. I, I wanna run out and kiss him because he actually started talking about COVID and BLM and he devoted the first third of his review to that before he even started talking about my book and placed my book in that context. And I was so touched and honored by that. But anybody who really knows me, like my son will definitely affirm that uh, for me, all time is simultaneous. I know that Einstein said it, but it actually feels that way to me. So for me, those 60s protests never ended, even though for everybody else they did. So this just feels like the wheel has come around to that again, Um, something so egregious. And it's so interesting to me because I think the role of actually seeing it on television, am I still coming through? Okay is is so powerful like we saw little kids being napalmed on tv so we wanted to march in the streets and we saw george floyd being killed by a murdered by a police officer so now we want to march in the streets so it's so galvanizing to see these actual events and get people out into the streets and yes consciousness has to change on mass there was I was never this hippy dippy. There was this very new age story of the hundred monkey phenomenon that one, it was really about apes, about chimps. One washed its mangoes, saw a human being do it, and then another and another. And eventually if you have 51, it's a tipping point and then all of them will do it. And it was a model of change of consciousness. But then actual scientists said that it was all bullshit and that didn't really happen. So that's one of the splittings. Experiment type things. Both things are true that consciousness does change on mass, but we have to do it person by person
1: Thank you. Yeah, I think that's really interesting and it's definitely the ethos that runs throughout the whole book Um, Because It's about changing garrett's consciousness and by extension everyone's so it is it is both simultaneously that the book is about one person changing, but in him changing, maybe everybody can. Um, or at least the 60s gave an opportunity for more people than ever before, to. Um, so yeah, I think that that's really important and prominent throughout the novel. Um, another thing that is uh, interesting to me is the, so it's not just that, the, Daphne seems to perhaps exhibit a scientific phenomenon and they meet talking about physics. It's that Garrett himself is a scientist and approaches the problem as a scientist trying to experiment and investigate. Um, so I think that, and, and even as he gets hippier and more liberal and everything, that doesn't change. Um, and he, he still remains fundamentally that person. So I think that I don't know if, maybe there's not a question there. <laughs> I don't know Mom, if you want to say anything about that, but it, it does have
0: that. This is a dialogue Kaylee and I are actually having because she got interested in a David Bohm documentary and then I watched it. And these men, these scientists who explore the quantum world are so brilliant and understand things. I can't, I don't have the math skills to do it or I would have been a physicist, I think. And I'm pretty good at math, but not that math. So. I didn't trust, especially in 1968, that I would be able to follow that path. And so you see these men, and you want to think the way they think, and then you realize that every single one of them, in some way or another, was involved with the Manhattan Project. And you want to say, "Where I don't want to be." Them and and being able to integrate insight about the nature of the universe into insight about the nature of the human heart. I I think that it's so important And, and there were absolutely no women in the documentary. There was one picture that had Marie Curie in it and then a later picture had several women but all the talking heads were men every single one of them and I kept thinking who was washing the socks, who was making the meals so these men could walk around and opine their Pristine thoughts. One of the guys, Penrose, I think it was, had a room that was completely white—white bookshelves, white walls, white couch, white chairs, white rug—and all I could think about was who was cleaning this room to make it so pristine. So, yeah, Garrett, I think, kind of—it's kind of like he's muscle bound. His cerebral quality actually is sometimes an impediment for him understanding the world. And I think I've had that challenge myself, so I can identify with that part of him.
1: Totally. Yeah. Um, Bethy has asked a question. The phrase table of gals reminded her of your friend Cindy, and she Googled it and found it was a mathematical table, but was wondering if you were thinking of Cindy when you used that phrase.
0: No, but I should have been. Cindy is a friend of of Bethy's and mine who lives in Pittsburgh who hails from Iowa and is truly the most American person I know. You know like she is a celebration of heartland America.
1: Um, We have another question from Mary Lannan. Did you have other challenges in writing from a male point of view?
0: I really didn't. You know I didn't. I, I, you know, that's for men to say that I did a terrible job and that's not true, but actually some quite a few men have written to me and said, I understand myself now. And that was exactly, and it wasn't so much the sixties mill year. It was the, the um, journey he takes to be able to be a husband and father uh, or partner and father, the journey he takes from being isolated, um from not wanting to engage and being able to just stick his toe and being able to um accept that responsibility and i actually wanted it to have a happier ending than it does all tied up in a bow and and my publisher also uh kaylee is one of them and johnny temple from akashic books didn't like that and i'm so glad he didn't because i wanted to create this perfect male at the end and i'm glad he didn't let me
1: Um, so regarding, just a follow-up to Mary's question, the, there's also the element of, um, female gaze. People talk a lot about male gaze on women, um, and then there's been a pushback movement of female gaze on men. Was that something you were deliberately thinking about, or was it just that he naturally was a man and so you wrote it?
0: I began to think about it as I wrote it. I didn't think about it initially, I just wanted a device of someone to observe her and I wanted it to be a man because I suppose I did want like the Beatrice Dante thing, not consciously, but that kind of thing.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But I, as I am as committed a feminist as can be, I started teaching women's studies in 1980. And I think, and went through the whole 70s consciousness raising thing. We, um, I was at a meeting of the night before the Ringo concert of colleagues from Nassau from Women's Studies. And we were reading a book called Push Out about the lives of young black women. And I clearly was saying more outrageous things than some of the people wanted to say. Personal things. And because to me, it all blends together. And in the 70s, it was all one thing. Like your theoretical understanding and your personal understanding were the same. So I think that as a feminist, it's really exciting to look at men. But what I really want to say is, I really love Garrett. I think that you have to not make them cardboard people who are villains, but look at them with love and the struggles that they have with love. But if we don't change the consciousness of men, we are not going to have a planet. You know, like I think that that's where the real work is. And so I wanted to write a book to see how I could imagine a man changing from one thing to another.
1: And you had to imagine it because you've never seen it, right?
0: That's not true. (laughs) And I have you, so I'm very lucky. And he is actually based, even though my friend Tram wasn't um, of that age, he's my age, he's Daphne's age, he is a psychology professor, recently retired from SUNY Albany, and I based a lot of Garrett on him, and he he's totally awesome. Not not the stodgy parts, the good no, part. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, actually, since since you brought Tram up, I, I think going back a little bit to the old version of the book, one thing that was really interesting to me as you were developing this was you had sort of an intermediary stage where you had an epilogue where the narrator of the entire book suddenly took form and that character was based on Tram. So then when it came time to make that character a bigger part, you sort of took, the, took that similar character um, and expanded him a lot and brought him, made him older, brought him into the 60s, etc. Um, so I thought that was a really interesting element of that transformation process. And he also
0: read the book and corrected the science whenever it was necessary. Well,
1: right. Isn't that why you picked him in the first place, sort of?
0: I picked him because I love him, you know? Like, he's a dear friend, and he's interesting to me.
1: Yes. Cool. Other questions? Anyone want to chime in on the video? Okay. Um... Another thing that I wanted to ask about was something that just fell out of my head. Um, I think that one of the really interesting things about it is you, we, so we've talked about the art, we talked about the science, we haven't really talked about the music, despite it being such a huge part of the book. there are songs mentioned constantly. And I think that's part, that's mostly just you. You know, you have such a strong relationship with music and 60s music in particular, but was it a deliberate choice to have that much music peppered in or did it just happen naturally?
0: Yes. It's the split experiment, the split experiment again.
1: Always. I want
0: to tell a funny story here that the first person who interviewed me after the book was published was a guy named Corey French in Toronto. And it was for a podcast. And he was not comfortable with my claim that the Beatles had changed consciousness. He said, you meant Bob Dylan, right? And he thought that I gave much too much credit to the Beatles, that they were just a bubblegum band. Of course, he isn't my age. I said, you can't imagine what it was like to be 13 and have JFK recently assassinated, and well, at 12, actually, and then have well, you know, and then have the Beatles come to New York. And it was just such a short space of time in between. It was like and
1: November it, to February.:
0: Yeah, November to February, and there they were. And we went I didn't, but one of my best friends actually went to the airport. And what it meant to fill that vacuum of grief, sadness, it really was an experience of moving from childhood into adolescence without our parents to guide us. It was a new place for us. It mm-hmm. was our parents. He had been killed. Talk about myth, very edible, right? The, the parent was killed and there we were on our own to wander into a new world. And there were the Beatles to lead us. So for me, I adore Dylan. I, I just adore Dylan, but I would say on a mass scale, a worldwide scale, it would have to be the Beatles and not just their words, their sounds, for their sure. message, their harmonies, their music, their style, their hair, just so much about them. Let a, Was the Daphne to my Garrett, you know?
1: Um, thank you for your comment, Ravenna, to um, mention, of course the Beatles changed consciousness. How can anyone deny that? Um, and Mia pointed out, that there's some misogyny involved there thinking the Beatles are just a pop group for girls um sarah would like you to talk about your next book and you actually have she has two completed books and a third she's working on so maybe you want to tell us about all of those
0: that's wonderful the second completed novel is called the fibonacci conspiracy and for all my academic friends here it was about the torturous crap my dissertation committee put me through to get my PhD. And my joke, this is kind of the inappropriate things that I say, that women's intelligence in the eyes of academic men is inverse to their cup size. So when you have G cup breasts, you have to be stupid. So anything you write that's intelligent at all has to be plagiarized. And they insistence that it was either one of them thought it was crap one of the men and the other one thought it was plagiarized so my question had to be do i plagiarize badly like like what is the solution there and i changed a lot of details like it's not autobiographical but the experience of what they put me through and it's it's funny because i thought the book would only work if the villains were funny So one of them, they're based on real people. One of them is based on this guy named Jack Ludwig, who I name Huck Doberman, but Saul Bellow named Valentin Gershbach, and he's already the villain in Herzog. So he can be a villain in another book. And I gave him a funny name because I think villains can be funny and should be funny. And it shouldn't be too heavy. So now that I'm querying agents, I kind of described it as... Um, Naomi Wolf meets um, Helen Fielding, who wrote Bridget Jones' diary. Mm-hmm. So it has a very breezy pop culture, but, but that idea of what happens to women's work and women intellectuals and how they're suppressed. And actually, you know, I had a wonderful career at Nassau, and I'm really happy I ended up teaching there because I love my students so much. But really, with the kind of abstraction I was talking about, my dissertation was about pension. I really could have applied to different kinds of schools, but they really did actually destroy my confidence. And I should say two years later, I got a letter from university microfiche that I'd written the best dissertation in the United States in 1967, and they didn't even want to give me a PhD, these guys. So I wanted to write a book about that. So that's the... One completed book. Another is a memoir that takes me from zero to 18. And the themes of that book are how maternal neglect and abuse really fold into misogyny, and how it, it kind of blends seamlessly into men's abuse of women when a girl is abused by her mother and the seamlessness of that transition. I think that might be more lyrical, more lyrical than my novels. The novel I'm working on now is just so crazy, I don't know what to say about it. It, it is, going back to Kaylee's thing about physics, it's about paired particles, the way one particle in one part of the universe can spin from negative to positive, and its pair will spin from positive to negative, and nobody knows why, and they're too far away from each other to communicate, because the communication would have to then go faster than the speed of light, which is impossible. So I, again, the device that I started to use to talk about the story I wanted to tell about these three people who were interconnected in a way they didn't know has now started to be eaten up by the device that I created to connect them. And right now it's about a woman, an Ebor, which is from Yiddish folktales, which is like a Dybbuk who's a spirit who inhabits somebody else's body to do bad and Ybor inhabits somebody else's body to do good. And she has been in the Holocaust and died in Auschwitz, and she finds herself sitting in a cafe in Montreal in 1985 without any intervening consciousness, just sitting in an old woman's body, sitting in the cafe, not knowing how she got there or what she's doing there. And she hears, as she's entering the the gas chambers, she hears Leonard Cohen's song "Dance Me to the Music of Your Burning Violins," which he did play, which he did write about the Holocaust. And she meets him in this cafe, and he said he wrote the song because she came to him in a dream. So I have no idea of where that came from. It's really weird. I don't haven't met an Ebor in real life.
1: As far but, as you know.
0: As far as I know, but it, so far I've written 25 pages of her talking to Leonard Cohen. It's
1: really good. It's so bizarre, but excellent and really engaging.
0: Well, this is how fiction gives us permission. Like, I don't know how many people here have tried Lincoln and the Bardo. I know that Kaylee's late husband, Kevin, really loved it. And on his love, I decided to read it. And I, I had some problems with it because it's so maudlin, the idea of... It's about link ghosts trying to console Lincoln for the loss of his son and Lincoln is, this is factual, a factoid that Lincoln went into the mausoleum and took the corpse of his son out and cradled him in his arms all night. And all these ghosts are trying to console him. And I didn't like the maudlessness of the emotions, but the permission to write the weirdest things you possibly can and still win the man Booker prize. So, I thought, well, I'll try this. This is interesting to me and I'll see what happens.
1: Uh, Sean would like to know if you have a soundtrack for when you compose.
0: When I write, do I listen to music? I don't, but there's always music in my head. There's just never a minute where there isn't music in my head. Yeah. Um, I, you know, like, All these questions on the internet that people are diverting them with, if you could have one skill that you don't have, I would play the piano unbelievably well and David will tell you,
1: I'm actually pretty terrible. No comment. Um, Any other questions before we wrap up? Um, Hello.
0: I just want to say that I have to go and get the book. I haven't read it yet. But what a beautifully orchestrated conversation. There's a uh, mother, son, daughter, and, you know, the colleagues and friends. This is beautiful, Laurel. And, uh, you know, I've been meaning to go get the book, but I'm glad I joined. And it's just amazing. I have to read it and, uh, and then wait for your next book. So congratulations. Oh, thank you. By the way, I listened to your beautiful talk this morning. And I direct all our Nassau colleagues. Neela put the link up to listen to it. What was particularly moving is that she talks about healing the racial violence and the othering of people. It's one thing to observe it. It's another thing to talk about methodology of healing. So I found that very moving. And really, anybody who's here who wants to talk about what they're writing or their struggles as writers, we have a little time or as much time as you want. I'm happy for everyone to talk because I think we do progress together as a group. We're all in this leaky boat together and we're all inspiring each other.
1: Neela, thank you. Welcome. Go buy it through through sea Witch. Here's the link again.
0: Got it. Got it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Right.
1: And if anyone wants the ebook, here is that again. Um yes, thank you so much, everyone. Um Uh, Once again, our next talk is Aspen Mattis on July 11th, I believe. Uh, Then we have Yvette Dion, um, Lauren Sharkey will be here for her book, Inconvenient Daughter, Um, and Sarah Hosey, who is here, will also be doing a talk in August.
0: I want to thank Sea Witch for hosting me. It's really been a pleasure. I, um, the sea witch personnel or two of my, or my, I have to be honest, my two favorite people in the world.
1: Um, and, mom, I don't think you're looking at the chat, but I just want to tell you, Kim said she's going to miss seeing you at South Hall.
0: Oh, I'm going to miss seeing everybody. I hate retirement. You all know, cause I put it that I didn't want to, I absolutely did not want to. I just didn't feel, everything converged and squeezed me like through a toothpaste tube to make that decision.
1: These things happen. All right, well, I think we will wrap up then if there is no one else who wants to speak. This has been wonderful, thank you so much. This is our best attended event so far. Uh, We hope you will join us again. If you're not on the mailing list, make sure to join at seawitchbooks.com so that you can get the invites to all our other events. Thank you so much, everyone. Bye, David. Bye.